Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Trevor Burris. I'm a legal associate with the Cato Center for Constitutional Studies, who is your co-host for this event today, along with the Federal Society Labor and Employment Practice Group. I'm excited about this event. It's particularly per pertinent right now to the Chicago event going on to test even Rahm Emanuel's uh, belief in unions, which will be, uh, be interesting to see how that plays out. Public sector unions is something I got interested in law school, and particularly writing two briefs, uh, co-writing two briefs that we filed in the Knox v. SEIU case, which came out in sort of surprising victory uh, in, in uh, protecting uh, non-consenting members' dues, and also the Harris v. Quinn case, which is still pending to challenge the forced unionization of home health care workers, which uh, Mallory will be talking about. I think the broader idea of public sector employment has always been an interesting issue. Uh, Charles Guiteau, if anyone knows who that is, famously assassinated uh, President Garfield because he hadn't given him the right patronage job. Now, Charles Guiteau was insane. One of his defenses in the courtroom was, the doctors killed him, I just shot him, uh, which was probably true, but he was insane. But it actually sparked a movement to reform civil service. Uh, that, that public assassination of the second, of the second president to be assassinated sparked a movement for reforming civil service. And now we have a different issue about government employment, uh, possibly something that's coming to a head with the Wisconsin events, the events in Chicago, and moving forward. So I'm very excited today to have Mallory Factor, the author of the new book, Shadow Bosses. Oops, I forgot to bring that. Hold on. <laughs> Shadow oh, Bosses. I always have a book with me. <laughs> yes, um, how, government, how government unions control America and rob taxpayers blind, which is now a bestseller. Mallory Factor is the John C. West Professor of International Politics in American Government at the Citadel. He is also the senior editor of Money and Politics for TheStreet.com. He has written widely on economic and financial issues for publications including the Wall Street Journal, Forbes Magazine, and newspapers nationwide. He has also appeared on numerous networks and cable stations including Fox News and CNBC to discuss finance and politics. He is the co-founder and co-chair of The Monday Meeting, a nationally recognized gathering of elected officials, journalists, and business leaders, and conservative authors in New York City, the largest meeting of its type in the country. Mallory speaks for about 30 minutes, and then I will introduce our respondent. So please welcome Mallory Factor. Should I put the book up like this? <laughs> Might obscure this. Thank you all for being here. This is very important, and uh, wow, this really is important. I, I think that to have a discussion like this is vital to America. I can't thank uh, enough Cato, um, Roger Pilon, Trevor, um, Ilya Shapiro, who's not here, Chris Edwards, and also the Federalist Society, who's, in, who's involved in this. I mean, uh, great leadership through Gene, Gene Mayer and uh, Dean Reuter. I mean, you guys do a great job, and thank you, and America thanks you for all you do. Um, I want to share with you a little bit about why I wrote Shadow Bosses. I started working on this project about a year ago with my wife. For years, I've written and spoken about the growing national debt and investigated why our government is growing beyond its means. I've been sounding that particular alarm for years and have spent a lot of time looking at the root causes of our excessive spending. What I discovered is that the shadow bosses are setting the agenda in Congress, in our state houses, in our city councils, and on our school boards. It's really about our government spending too much on government employees, hiring too many and paying them too much. 
This brought me to the subject of government employee unions. I began exploring how government employee unions lobby our government to increase spending on government employees, which increases their dues income and gives them more money to spend on politics. It is this cycle of political spending which benefits government employee unions far more than it benefits even government employees and, is, and drives our nation into debt. And today, I want to share some of my findings with you. What's a shadow boss? Why did we name the book Shadow Bosses? In our own lives, our shadow bosses are the people we really work for, the people who hold us accountable for the decisions we make in our lives. It's our fathers telling us to study harder so we'll have a chance for a bright future. It's our mothers pressing us to stay out of trouble. It's our football coaches standing on the sidelines, sending in the plays. For many of us, God is our shadow boss, giving us a plan for action we ought to take and consequences if we don't. Unfortunately, as I found while writing this book, for many of our political leaders, their shadow bosses are the government employee union bosses. These bosses tell them what to do, which legislation to support, when to bend to the demands of the unions and contract negotiations. The shadow bosses, my friends, are there to pat them on the back when they support pro-union agendas and to tear them down if they act against those interests. Just how unionized is our government? Government workers are five times as unionized as, a, as private employees. Less than 6% of workers are members of a union in the private sector. But of the 20.5 million people who work for government, 41% were represented by a union in 2011. Their rate of unionization varies by state and by profession. In 20 states, less than 20% of government employees are union members. But in 15 states, more than 50% are union members. Teachers, firemen, police, postal workers, they're among the most unionized government employees. But government unions now represent almost every type of government worker, including federal border patrol agents, office workers in state and local government, university professors, graduate assistants in state universities, even zookeepers and NASA scientists. Government is a growth area for these unions compared with the decline of unions in the private sector. To put this in perspective, the entire domestic auto industry has 219,000 unionized workers, while the U.S. Post Office alone has 477,000 unionized workers, two to two and a half times as many as the entire auto industry. And we all know how the Postal Service is faring. One of the main arguments against privatizing government functions is that these functions are too important to be subject to market forces. But if these critical functions shouldn't be subject to Adam Smith's invisible hand of the market, they certainly should not be subject to the iron fist of the labor unions. Republicans and Democrats used to agree that collective bargaining for government employees is harmful to our nation. 
one of the most pro-union presidents in American history, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, said that collective bargaining for government workers was wrong because strikes against our government were, quote, unquote, unthinkable and intolerable. Even union officials thought government employee unions were bad. George Meany, the former head of the AFL-CIO, actually said, quote, it is impossible to bargain collectively with government. Then the Democrats finally realized they could direct cash to the unions, use the cash as a, as a piggy bank for their election campaigns. Suddenly, Democrats got tons of campaign support from the unions. In Shadow Bosses, we show how unions got President Kennedy in 1962 to sign Executive Order 10,988, which extended collective bargaining to federal workers. And since then, my friends, government employee unions have taken over the union movement, and now they've taken over our government. Most people believe that while many other types of government work, most people believe that while many other types of government workers are now represented by big labor, that our military and national security employees cannot be unionized. But is this really true? Our full-time national defense is in the hands of between 2.1 and 2.2 million people, including 1.4 million active duty servicemen and women who cannot be unionized under current law. But the 700,000 plus civilians who are an integral part of, to our military are already 60% unionized. This means that our entire full-time military, including civilians, is more than 20% unionized. Government unions are on our military bases inside the Pentagon, determining workplace rules and norms, filing grievances, influencing personnel decisions in these sensitive job sites. Similarly, many employees of our nation's most sensitive national security agencies have already been unionized. Our Border Patrol agents, Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA employees, our Citizenship and Immigration agents, our Customs agents, and even some Coast Guard employees are already unionized. The unionization of TSA baggage screeners last year represents a further step toward unionizing all federal workers, no matter how critical their role is in preserving our national security. Department of Homeland Security is now over 40% unionized. Even for these workers, there are, there are few compelling reasons why unionization is beneficial, and lots of reasons why unionizing critical national security workers is harmful to our nation. After all, federal employee salaries and benefits are established by Congress, not by negotiations by unions. But unionizing these employees limits our government's ability to deploy them as and where, at where needed in a crisis, and that's thanks to mandatory union policies and union work rules. Furthermore, it is proven that organizing any group of employees makes strikes among them more likely, even if their contracts expressly forbid such labor actions. Strikes are illegal for federal workers and many state and local government workers, but that doesn't prevent strikes from happening. 
Chicago Today, New York City transit workers, Tacoma, Washington teachers, Detroit teachers, postal workers have all gone on strike illegally. When the professional air traffic controllers struck in 1981 in violation of federal law, their president, the PACTO president, Robert Poli, snapped, and I quote, the only illegal strike is an unsuccessful one. PATCO's strike was unsuccessful because President Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers who were illegally striking and refused to return to work and follow his orders. But how much would another, but how would another federal strike of, of PATCO fare under President Obama's watch? Okay, what does, this, what does all this mean for our nation? Many Americans feel that we've lost control of our government our and our politicians no longer answer to the American people. You know something? They're right. Government employee unions have huge influence over our political system and are driving big government spending and over-regulation of our economy. Here are some ways that government employee unions are harming America and the American taxpayer. I'm going to go through a few of them very quickly. One. Government unions drive excessive spending on government employees. Private sector unions have to make sure that their demands are not so excessive that the private employer is driven out of business. Outrageous concessions to the unions don't drive government out of business and make union members lose their job. The government will always be in business. Unwieldy union contracts just make the government immensely bigger and more expensive and more burdensome to the taxpayers. Two, government unions are private organizations that get special benefits and treatment from our government. It's important to realize that government unions, like all unions, are private organizations. Government employees get their business directly from our government, but they are not themselves a part of government. Unions represent government employees because it's their business not because they're working for the public good. The problem is that our government elevates one group, government employee unions, out of all proportion to anyone else. That's taxpayers, citizens, even their own members. You and I have a right to speak under the First Amendment, but you and I don't have a right to be listened to by government. When you petition the government, for example, you have a right to talk. But the government doesn't have to listen to you. But there is one group that does have a right to force government to listen to them, government employee unions. With collective bargaining, public officials are forced to bargain with the union. They just can't ignore their demands and walk away from the table. But they don't have to bargain with the taxpayers. We must never forget that unions are businesses run for the benefit of their members and the union bosses, not America's workers or our nation. Government unions get huge subsidies from taxpayers. The American taxpayer is unwittingly paying government workers for the time they work on union matters instead of their actual jobs. It's called official time and referred to as release time. My friends, we came up with the number. Nationwide, taxpayers pay 23 million hours of official time, which represents over $1 billion subsidy 
every year to these unions. And the federal number isn't ours. It comes from the Office of Personnel Management. Though it was pretty hard to find. What do these employees work on when they're on official time? No one knows for sure, but I'll tell you one thing they're not working on, government business. Some union officials and members spend a few hours per week on union business. At the Department of Homeland Security, we've already found 62 Homeland Security employees that are paid with your tax dollars to work full time on union business. Official time is a huge taxpayer funded subsidy which gives government employee unions more money to spend on other activities, like politics. And there are many other subsidies to unions, including government collecting union dues automatically from employee paycheck, many outright grants to unions for green job training, and other types of job training which, we, which seem to produce little <coughs> economic benefit for our nation. Unions corrupt our political process. Government unions aren't just bankrupting our economy, they're also compromising our system of free elections. Unions collect over $14 billion in dues annually. That's the economies of a lot of countries. And the unions themselves say they use 20 to 30% on member representation, which includes, by the way, organizing new members. What do you think they use the rest of the money for? My friends, a lot go for political spending. Government unions use bought and paid for politicians to pass legislation granting them unending benefits. Government unions like to say that they get to elect their own bosses. They actually put into power the people who will make all the decisions about salaries, benefits, work rules for their, for their members, as well as laws and regulations that govern the unions themselves. And if these politicians don't perform, the unions throw them out and elect other politicians in their place. These unions will do anything in their power to elect politicians who will serve their interest. They'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars, even billions of their members' dues on politics. They'll send in political ground troops, including paid volunteers, to get out the vote. They'll form alliances with and donate to leftist organizations who will support a pro-union agenda. Money flows from government employee unions to politicians, back again to the same unions in a never-ending cycle of greed and corruption. Politicians know that union money will cycle back to them in return for their pro-union votes. And if they cross these unions, the unions will throw them right out of office. Unions reward their friends and punish their enemies very effectively. Government unions are bankrupting our states. States with the longest and strongest history of government employee unions are also states with the worst budget crises. That's fact. We documented in shadow bosses. Government employee unions were a major factor, major contributing factor, perhaps the major contributing factor to our state and local budgetary crises. Unions are bankrupting our states with outrageous, outrageous salaries, overtime, pension, and feather bedding of government employees, and they're crowding out other necessary spending in state and local budgets. 
Of the 10 states with the highest debt per capita in 2010, all of them, all of them are heavily unionized and none of them are right to work states. Taxpayers are fleeing heavily unionized states for the greener and freer pastures of the less unionized states. The, heavy un the heavily unionized states have lost, while the right to work states as a group have gained eight to nine representatives in each of the last three times congressional delegates have been reapportioned based on population. Did you hear that? Eight to nine, last three times. That people are voting with their feet. America is becoming two distinct nations, the forced union nation and the free nation. Government unions are the engine of socialism. While working on shadow bosses, we were able to prove what I had suspected but never known for sure, that when unions elect friendly politicians to office, they not only get pro-union votes, but they also get reliably, reliably leftist votes on a whole host of issues. Our research has shown that the most labor, that the most labor supported members of Congress have abysmal voting records on all types of votes that matter to moderates and conservatives. They vote against business. They vote against family values. They vote against Second Amendment rights. And union members have little, if any, at all say in that spending. I have a chart on our website, www.shadowbosses.com, which lays out these actual facts. You can see the members and how much is being spent. <coughs> My friends, this is why the immense spending by government employee unions on matters, uh, on politics matters to every single one of us. Shadow bosses, the union heads, masquerade as being pro-worker while confiscating rank-and-file members' dues to solidify their own power in Washington and across America. They are actually harming American workers in a number of ways. For example, huge numbers of government employees are forced to accept union representation without their consent. Many union le leaders are now promoting a new line that forced, collect forced collective bargaining is a fundamental human right. Unions are even trying to ensconce collective bargaining in state constitutions, like the ballot initiative in Michigan. In the private sector, most people are allowed to bargain for themselves and to command what the market will bear. Government employees in 43 states, including 16 right-to-work states, and the federal government are forced to accept union representation in the government workplace, whether they want it or not. Collective bargaining means that all employees in a unionized workplace are forced under union representation. This violates these workers' rights to sell their own labor freely and mandatorily inserts a union between them and their employer in all matters related to their job. Because the union is so involved in their workplace, these workers often face pressure, even coercion, to join the union. They join the union in far larger numbers than workers who are given the choice to represent themselves, even in right-to-work states. Government workers are forced to pay union dues to keep their jobs in 22 states. In many states, government workers are not only forced to accept a union as their bargaining representative, 
but they're also forced to pay dues and fees to the union, or as I call it, tribute, or they lose their jobs. This is forced unionism at its worst. Now, employees should be allowed to join a union if, you, if they want to. We're not arguing about that. But they should be given the freedom to get or keep a job without having to pay this tribute to a union. Forced dues, my friends, forced dues money is the gasoline that fuels the union's vast political spending. More than three quarters of the dues income that government unions collect is from the forced dues states. Millions of government workers are represented by unions that they never voted for and may never get a chance to vote on. In the private sector, companies come and go, but the government never goes out of business. As a result, once a government workplace is unionized, it remains unionized basically forever. Teachers in a school district may have voted for a union in 1959 when government employees began to unionize. A teacher hired in that district today will be represented by that same union over a half century after the vote took place. That teacher will likely never get a chance to vote on whether she wants, a, wants union representation or not. In fact, 93% of government union members have never had the chance to vote in an election to decide whether a union should represent their workplace. To give government employees a real say in whether they want a union in the workplace, every unionized workplace should require a secret ballot election on a regular basis, say every three years. The people who work in the workplace today should decide whether they want a union to represent them. They shouldn't be bound by a decision that their predecessors made decades earlier. While there's a process to decertify unions, the procedure is so difficult, so cumbersome to satisfy that it almost never occurs, except when one union campaigns to get another union thrown out and steal its business. The evidence shows that when given a choice, many individual government workers choose to end union boss control over their workplace. Under Governor Scott Walker, government employees in Wisconsin were finally given a, a chance to vote on having union representation or not, immediately. Forced union workplace in Wisconsin state government faded away. 50% of their membership left the union halls. Given the freedom to choose, Wisconsin government employees proved that in many cases, union membership was based on coercion, not on the desire of the workers for unions' collective bargaining. By taking members' dues, union bosses are able to make, on average, more than 10 times their members' salaries. Union bosses are the true 1%. Rank and file union members should be striking against their bosses and occupying their headquarters. Former 31-year AFSCME, American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, President Gerald McEntee, made $512,000 in 2011. And he also spent $325,000 on private planes in a year and a half. And his secretary treasurer, made 847,000. American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten makes almost a half a mil, more than 10 times what an average teacher makes. NEA President Dennis Van Ruckel, 460,000. And over half the headquarters employees, they make over 75,000. 
Talk about income inequality, pretty interesting salaries from some of the biggest supporters of the Occupy Wall Street movement. However, I believe that these union shadow bosses' excesses do not happen anywhere near to the extent in Chris Townsend's union, for which I commend him. I am pleased that Chris Townsend is here today to give his point of view. Chris represents United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America, a non-AFL-CIO, non-AFL-CIO union, representing 35,000 government and private sector workers. His union has already addressed many of the problems with unionism in our country by making sure that rank and file members actually get a chance to vote for leadership of their union and making sure union income of their bosses, the shadow bosses, is similar to union workers. But my friends, keep in mind, the union movement consists of over 16 million people and the 35,000 union members in Chris's union, I'm sorry to say are a rounding error in the union movement. After all, the shadow bosses, they don't want Chris's type of union from getting much traction in the union movement. Given his unique perspective, I'm hoping that we can find common ground today and he will tell us what all those other unions are doing wrong because it's clear his union is already addressing several critical problems with the union movement in America. My friends, union representatives often choose to shift issues to crony capitalism and, uh, and other issues because they know they can't win on the union issues. So they try to deflect attention away from the real issue of how unions harm workers. And they just wave crony capitalism. If crony capitalism and corporate greed arguments fail, then they attack the messenger. There's lots of problems in this country, including crony capitalism and other special interests. So let's take it as a given right now that crony capitalism is bad. Whether crony capitalism or crony unionism is more pernicious, it's not the issue for today. The issue for today is government employee unions and the union movement. Crony capitalism versus crony unionism, it could wait for another forum. But today we're here to address how government employee unionism both harms workers' rights and freedoms and grows big government. In the end, my research brought me to this. There will always be a place for unions in America, but there should never, ever be a place for forced unionism. There should never be a place in any free nation for monopoly power granted over workers to the shadow bosses. I thank you. Thank you, Mallory, for telling us what you really think. Uh, <laughs> as I said, I am also very excited to have Chris Townsend here today, as I think Mallory is too. Uh, he's, he's, I love his bio, so. <laughs> Chris Townsend is the political action director of the Washington Representative for the United Electrical Workers Union. He has been stationed in Washington, D.C. since 1992, making him one of the longest serving union political representatives and lobbyists in the labor movement. He is responsible for UE political action work in a number of states and in dealings with federal agencies, NGOs, allied labor organization, <coughs> and news media. Since 1991, Townsend has held a position on UE's bargaining committee with the General Electric Company, and he is currently the most senior member of the eight union coordinated bargaining 
Committee Coalition of Unions that try to bargain with GE. He regularly participates in the organizing efforts of his union, most recently in Missouri and Texas. Townsend has belonged to UE for 25 years. He previously worked in a variety of occupations, including public sanitation worker, warehouse worker, and in brickworks. He has held elected local union positions in the ATU, UFCW, and SEIU unions, joined the labor movement in 1979 when he was 17. He's had the same girlfriend for 30 years, lives in Northern Virginia, and operates a sizable garden at Mount Vernon on the former estate of one of America's true revolutionaries, George Washington, which you should tell me more about that later. Please welcome Chris Townsend. Thank you. Thanks uh, very much for uh, the hospitality. Uh, it's always nice when you get to write your own introduction. Uh, a couple things. Uh, I am exactly that, and we are exactly what UE is. And I want to start this, uh, this afternoon by just mentioning a couple uh, things I think have been alluded to uh, either by Trevor or by uh, Mr. Factor already, uh, which is the situation uh, in Chicago. Uh, I proclaim, without hesitation, complete support for the teachers in Chicago to push back against Rahm Emanuel and the degraded situation that's being forced on them. And I, I start with that not to poke anyone in the eye, but to just let you know exactly where I stand. Uh, this is a landmark battle at this particular time. It's probably landmark by itself, but this particular time in, in particular. And it percolates down into the labor movement. I'm proud today to stand here in front of all of you or anyone, go out in the street and proclaim it, that the goals and aspirations of organized labor are just, uh, more needed than ever, more timely than ever. Uh, not only with those teachers in Chicago, but throughout the labor movement, throughout the federal sector, throughout the state sector, throughout the local sector, including several thousands of members of my union <coughs> who go to work every day and perform the public services that uh, the taxpayers pay for. Uh, and we do it, we do it proudly, and we do it well. And we also demand that we receive some respect and some unionized conditions. We have negotiated labor contracts, and we expect that they be followed. Uh, with that, I'll, I'll mention my thanks to Cato, because I don't know how many of you know that this is an incredibly rare event. It almost never happens in the United States uh, that we have someone who is so stridently anti-union have the capacity, the ability to talk to someone who is so stridently pro-union. Uh, this is something that uh, Cato is to be uh, acknowledged for. Uh, this is something that we need more of, uh, and we need this uh, perhaps now in this moment that our nation finds itself in more than ever. Uh, but I want to turn, for the sake of the short time that I have, to the book that Mr. Factor has written, Shadow Bosses. Uh, but I wanted to give it a little context. Uh, the history of anti-unionism, the history of anti-union literature, anti-union diatribes, for last of a bit, the literature that goes with it, is not new. It's nothing that was invented recently. It goes back, and what it does is it accompanies the trends in U.S. trade unionism. Just go back the last 80 to 90 years. We've had in the United States essentially a, a, a ebbing and flowing of militant unionism, aggressive unionism, left-wing unionism perhaps, offset by business unionism, more conservative unionism. And the employers have had to deal with that, and the government has had to deal with that. And we've also had a situation where at certain periods in that history, the business union elements have been supported. The business union elements have been used against the other differing, more militant philosophy of unionism. And that the literature indicates 
those ebbing and flowing. And I, when I received the book, thanks to uh, Mallory and to Cato, and I was had a chance to read it, I was driven to go into my own library. I'm a self-taught man. Uh, I'm the used bookstore uh, uh, <laughs> degree, I guess I would call it. Uh, I went in and I discovered that really what we have is a tradition of anti-unionism that goes back, and I pulled out one from almost every decade from the last 70 years. Uh, 1934, Elizabeth Dilling uh, worked very hard to produce the Red Network. This is, of course, a spine-tilling epic, a spine-tingling epic that would have you believe that every single union of that period was, of course, a communist conspiracy funded by Moscow, and that anybody associated with it must be deported if they're able to be. Uh, we have a situation rolling through the 1940s. I couldn't actually find the book, but I found the little reference that we had in our publication. We had an avalanche of anti-union publicity against the CIO, uh, vote for the CIO and build a Soviet America, join the CIO and help build a Soviet America, support John L. Lewis and support Joe Stalin. I mean, this was a, uh, a whole period, an avalanche of, of print literature at that time by employers and government agencies. We, however, moved into the 50s and 60s where the anti-unionism became a little bit more academic. Uh, the, the rhetoric was a bit too charged. Perhaps the analogies weren't as professional as folks wanted them, and we had a little bit more uh, sedate view of it. We had one here by uh, Merle Stanley Rukeyser, long forgotten. Collective bargaining, the power to destroy. Didn't sell very well, but I managed to find it many years later. Uh, here was one from the 1970s by Rothenberg and Silverman, two lawyers who practiced the anti-union craft, labor unions, how to avert them, beat them, out-negotiate them, unload them. I mean, ultimately, the goal, unload them. Uh, we had a little academia in the 70s into the 80s, the imperfect union, history of corruption in U.S. unions, detailed, you know, page after page of some union guy dipping into the till, associating with unsavory characters, members somehow having their interests betrayed. Uh, and I, I don't want to leave Cato out of this. Uh, we have from the 1980s, Making America Poorer, The Cost of Labor Law by Morgan Reynolds. Well, this is somehow a tome that if you were to take this to heart, uh, and recognize that Cato sanctioned this at the time, at least, uh, that somehow the labor laws of the United States are just absolutely reducing workers to a poverty-stricken existence, as if somehow that's the, the causation of that. Uh, you roll a little bit later into the, the anti-union trend. Here was one that I found. I was digging out. Uh, it was fashionable for a number of years to focus on the Teamsters Union. It had some cinematic aspects, had some pizzazz to it. So we have inside the world of the Teamsters Union, the Devil's Pact. Duke Zeller, all these renegades and has-beens and convicted felons selling their what they knew or what they said or made up to, uh, to the writers that would produce them. And come all the way to modern times, uh, one of the most perennial and long-lasted union baiters and union haters, Reed Larson from the National Right to Work Committee, uh, Stranglehold, How Unions Have Hijacked Our Government. This was from about 12 years ago. This is much shorter than shadow bosses, but essentially from the same slice. You, government unions and unionism in the government sector is, of course, to blame for all of these uh, ills that our nation faces. Now, I come to the final book in my, and, and I would also remind everyone that I, I came today on the bus first and then the subway. So my bag was at its full capacity at that point. I could have brought more. Uh, but not that you would need it or want to see it necessarily, but probably the first time that most of those books have seen the light of day in many decades, I would say. But I'll, I'll come to my final book prior to getting into Shadow Bosses, uh, a book written by a 
Repentant Union Buster, Marty Levitt, Martin J. Levitt. It was called Confessions of a Union Buster. You can still find it. Marty Levitt practiced the union smashing, union busting craft off and on. He was a very conflicted individual. I believe he's passed on now. I had the privilege, I would say it was a privilege, to meet him and get to know him a little bit in one of his repentance stages. And he mentions in here that he talks about how in the union busting craft and in the anti-unionism craft that he helped to innovate in the United States, he said, and he's speaking now about when they're campaigning in a workplace trying to terrorize workers out of joining a union or out of voting for a union. He says, in all the letters, every word, letters meaning letters from the employer to the workers, in all the letters, every word was carefully planned. Terms describing the union always carried derogatory and threatening connotations. We always called union leaders bosses. For example, to repel the image of the union as a true worker organization. Management was painted as humble, caring, righteous. Subsequent letters detailed the union's policy on dues, fees, fines, assessments, divulged union rules and disciplinary techniques, warned that strikes would ruin the company, jeopardize their job, et cetera, et cetera. So I go through that for a purpose, to commend Mr. Factor for having done what is a diligent job. If you do buy the book, Managed to find a free copy and go through it, you'll see it's meticulously written, meticulously detailed, footnoted. You've, you've expended a great deal of time on this. But there's nothing new here. There's nothing new here. We're continuing a, a long trend of anti-unionism, fanatic anti-unionism here in the United States, a political and literature trend. And, and I, when I was first looking at it, I realized on the back that it's listed as a political science volume. But as I got going through it, I began to wonder whether or not it was more political science fiction. Uh, and I'll, I'll demonstrate that in a minute. I'll, 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 and, and I'm not doing this to pick it apart or to be inflammatory here, but I want to just set the tone for this for those of you that haven't seen it. Uh, the, the subtitle of the book, Government Unions Control America and Rob Taxpayers Blind. I, I just, whatever our nation faces as problems and challenges, I can't imagine that very many people would get out of bed in the morning and believe that they're being controlled by unions or being robbed blind by the guy that picks up their trash or the woman that visits them to deliver Meals on Wheels or uh, any of the public sector folks that they might deal with, even when that is frustrating. It's just a, it's an assertion that's, that's over the top. If you go through, and I'll go through, and at some point, Trevor, if, uh, if I've exceeded my time, just give me the, the flag. Uh, I want to go through, and I just want to mention a couple of the things in the book to, to point out why I think the, the sheer level of bombast, uh, the sheer level of exaggeration, the sheer level of uh, repetition of canards and mistruths is just really debases the whole point of the discussion, which is you go into the beginning, this, this assertion that Obama, President Obama, is beholden to labor, somehow bows down to labor, does what labor tells him to do. Um, I can tell you, as long as I've been in this town, this is the least union-friendly president that I've seen in the 20 years that I've been here. Uh, that's not to his credit either. It's just to sort of try to create the invention that somehow the Omega we're dealing now in Chicago, the teachers are dealing with the man that he picked for his first chief of staff, which I think the date that Obama selected Rahm Emanuel may in fact be noted in history as the date that he made the turn away from his campaign of victory and onto the path that he's taken. But as you go through, we have, and I'll go through it in rapid style because it's just, it's to repeat so many of the things that we deal with as unions and we deal with as workers when we have this. Government employee unions demand more and more from our government until they bankrupt our nation. My friends, if this nation is bankrupt, and it might be, 
in a few years, if not now, has nothing to do with unions. There's a, there's a small matter of a housing crisis and a mortgage crisis and a banking crisis and a corporate crime crisis and a corruption with the ratings agencies and every facet financially of our system. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it exceeds the boundaries of the imagination to think that somehow unions were responsible for that. But keep going. Government workers, one of the canards that gets repeated, Mr. Factors chose to repeat it, government workers are overpaid. Well, this is not to mention that part of the problem is that private sector wages have collapsed around them. Private sector wages have collapsed for men like me, high school educated men who go out and try to earn a living in this country. There's virtually nothing for you but a downhill slide, a slow one if you're lucky. Jobs for life, government workers have jobs for life. Well, somebody bring me a union contract from a public sector union someplace that guarantees you a job for life. Please do that, I'd like to see it, I've never seen it. Employers discharge people all the time, many times for good reasons. We stop them when it's not for a good reason. Uh, the question of strikes, strikes, strikes. There's all, if it hadn't been for the teachers union strike in Chicago, can anyone remember the last strike that there was? Handful of school teachers here, there, or some group of sanitation workers someplace. I mean, geez, we're talking uh, hardly about a strike wave in the United States. Strikes have their merits and demerits, but to somehow try to paint a picture that there's a strike wave going on in the United States at this point in time or any time in recent history amongst the public sector is absurd. Let's keep going. Union finances are not transparent. Well, come with me and I'll show you the forms that we have to fill out and the fact that they're slapped up on the internet. I don't think there's any section of not-for-profit organizations or NGOs or, that are as financially monitored as we are. Folks may not like the answers that they hear. Folks may not understand what they're reading, but our books are open for everyone to see. Believe me, any union campaign we get involved in, uh, it's, it's thrown in our face, sometimes factually, sometimes not. Uh, keep going through the book. Uh, as I had referenced, there was a time in history when the Teamsters Union was sort of the, the favorite bastard of the union haters and union baiters. Today it's rapidly becoming the service employees union. They're, they're rapidly becoming, uh, you know, the one that uh, everyone wants to focus on demonize. Uh, Obama is a socialist. Well, I happen to know something about socialism. Uh, he's no socialist. That one we can dispose of pretty quickly. He's a very sophisticated uh, uh, campaigner, perhaps, but certainly no socialist. Uh, card check and intimidation, the card check legislation that we were fighting so passionately for and that I fought so passionately for, and that the Democrats left us hanging, left us hanging completely, disgracefully so. We knew that we were going to have Republican opposition, but our Democratic allies left us hanging. Uh, card check is necessary because the labor laws of the land are skewed against unions and they're not enforced. And then I defy any of you, or I, I challenge any of you to go out and find a, a union campaign, private or public sector, and find anything like a level playing field. You'll see people fired, terrorized. Uh, I've just had per some personal experience with it. I mean, we're talking a really ferocious situation that the employers will throw on us. Let's keep going, though, through the book. Obamacare, somehow being a union plot. Well, I would lay out to you that Obamacare will, in fact, be one of the most anti-union pieces of legislation that we've ever seen passed in the United States. Uh, keep going. Again, jobs for life. We get to the teachers' union. Teachers' union's clearly one of the most uh, uh, demonized groups today, the whipping boy. Uh, I'm moving through. I had made many, many pieces. Shadow bosses bankrupt our states. Well, where on earth have we had a situation where we can we recognize deindustrialization, the destruction of the tax base? The fact is that in many communities there's nothing left to tax. 
I don't know how that gets blamed on public sector workers, but the fact that we pursued policies to export our best jobs, unions kill prosperity. Again, it's our fault, I guess, that we people that make a living wage and have benefits and can actually support a community. Uh, one thing I have to mention, uh, Mr. Factor mentions my home state of Virginia and Fairfax County, where I live in particular, as some example of, uh, of the greatness of anti-unionism and the fact that the public sector in Virginia is not permitted to collectively bargain. Well, let's at least recognize that this was done to us by Democrats. The same way in North Carolina. This was not anything that the Republicans should be able to take credit for. Uh, this was something that was done to us uh, and needs to be mentioned. Pension padding. There's something wrong with having a pension. Corruption. Corruption. Uh, the, the battle plan. One of the ones I want to mention, the last one, and then I'll wind up. Uh, unions oppose guns. Unions are for gun control. This is one of the ones which I, I knew was going to find its way in here because we customarily find this. Well, my friends, if you want to find out who's for gun control and you work for somebody, Get out your gun, if you have one, and take it to work and show it to the boss. Call me from the jailhouse, <laughs> and then you'll find out who's for gun control. Whether you have a union or not, you'll be terminated, and there's nothing we can do to get you back. Now, if folks don't like that because they believe you have the right to carry arms, well, that's not a problem that the labor movement really can do business with or deal with. Uh, and that's, that's been used against us. The first time that was ever used against me was by the General Electric Company 25 years ago in West Virginia, oh, UEs for gun control. Well, we dusted that one off by you know, reminding these guys that it was illegal to bring your gun onto company property. So I'll wind up by saying this, and I don't mean to be disparaging, but I mean to be pointed about this, that the, the work that Mallory and Elizabeth Factor have done here on shadow bosses is what it is. It's now brought us to this current moment we have where we're now going into a cycle, not a cycle of... Uh, diminishing the militant aspect of the labor movement, but we're moving into a cycle where the political and economic forces want to extinguish us, want to liquidate us, want to destroy us once and for all. The Wisconsin battle, the Ohio battle, all these battles sort of indicate that that's where we're at. It's a challenge that we have faced before. It's a challenge that we will face again. It's something that uh, perhaps is to be expected given the economic recession and given the balance of forces. But I will say that despite the fact that there's been a tremendous effort to somehow come up with something new here or to come up with something that's revelatory, it's not. In a class struggle riven and driven system that we live in, I don't expect the employers to be ambivalent about whether or not I enjoy the benefits of labor organization. I only wish that more within the labor movement understood that this is a fight to the finish. And that, I think, is going to be the telling uh, situation in the next few years, whether or not we see those forces within the labor movement who are willing to put away their delusions and illusions that in any way these employer forces are willing to tolerate our existence. They're not. We are in a fight to the finish. My union understands that. And I want to send a shout out to all the members of my union around the country who are watching, because damn it, we will be there in the trench with our, our full faculties to fight this absolutely uh, frontal assault that we've been suffering for several years and we anticipate suffering and enduring in the next several years. So thanks again, Trevor, and thanks again to Cato, and thanks again to Mr. Factor for taking this on. Thank you. I'll, I'll do it. Um, I was asked if I wanted to um, say a few words about some of the comments he made, and uh, I'd sure like to. Let me just start off by saying one thing which I think is vital. And I said this before, I want to say it again. There will always be a place for unions, but there should be never, never, ever a place for forced unionism. There is no place for monopoly power over workers that are granted to the shadow bosses. I am not anti-union. I am not 
anti-union. I am pro-worker. And that's what, I, that's what this is all about. I'm not going to tell you that I came up with any earth-shattering conclusions in the book. I just lay out the fa facts and figures, and I challenge anybody to show where the facts and figures are wrong. Let's talk um, one little, let's talk for a few seconds about his first point. And Mr. Townsend's first point was an interesting one about Obama not being union-friendly. Union let's take a look at that for a second. Obama is, first of all, our first union label president. His union connections are beyond any doubt. Um, he's a partner and a true believer. From car check to closed door, closed door meetings to the health care, and I want to get into that too because I have a memo from the SEIU to uh, Tom Daschle who headed the transition team, but we'll get into that if we have enough time a little later. An actual memo, which we got through FOIA. But anyway, the president's closest connection is SEIU, and, and, he's, and he's right. They are the bad boys of the union movement. Obama worked for Chicago SEIU Local 880, the notorious local with strong ties to ACORN, uh, the, the, the union that uh, unionized home health care workers, many, most of, of them against their will, under, under Rod Blagojevich. Um, Andy Stern, SEI's former president, celebrated Obama's first 100 days in office and said, SEIU is in the field, in the White House, and in its administration, quote, unquote. Uh, that sounds very anti-union. The unions reportedly spent between 300 and 450 million to elect Obama. Since his election, the union bosses have frequented the White House as guests for business and pleasure. Although it's a close battle with AFL-CIO's Richard Trumka, Andy Stern, I think, won the award for the most frequent shadow boss visitor to the White House during the early days of the Obama administration. Stern visited the White House in the first 100 days 22 times, meeting with the president six times, morning met with his cabinet, all in the first couple hundred days of the, or 100 and some odd days of the Obama presidency. Trumpka bragged, and this is a quote too, that he visited the White House two or three times a week and talked with members of the White House staff every single day, including weekends. State dinners, let's look at those. First state dinners honoring, honoring Indian Prime Minister Trumpka, Andy Stern, SIU Secretary Treasurer Anna Berger. They were there. 2011 state dinner honoring German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Teamster James Hoffa was there. I can go on and on. UK Prime Minister Randy Weingarten was there. Very unfriendly to unions. Andy Stern sits on Obama's deficit council, even though he resigned from the SEIU in 2010. Former Secretary Treasurer Anna Berger was an Obama appointee to the Economic Recovery Board of Advisors, working alongside AFL CIO President Richard Trumka. John Sullivan, SEIU's Associate Counsel, was given a seat on the Federal Election Commission. Craig Becker, Associate General Counsel, SEIU, was appointed by President Obama to a seat on the National Labor Relations Board in a controversial recess appointment over the objections of a bipartisan group of senators. Current and former SIIU officials are now operating from inside our government, only to shuttle back and forth between the labor movement when Obama finally leaves office, taking with them the inside knowledge how best to pressure government into advancing their agenda. Government, government employee unions have flowed into electing and working and re-electing Obama. Their money cycles in and out. Lots of, lots of grants. Um, U.S. Department of Labor, 7.4 million green, green jobs training to SEIU, 4.6. I can go on and on and on. I'm getting the high sign that I'm taking too much time. But I have, I mean, I can go on and give you 
chapter and verse. This is the most union-friendly president in history. He is our union label president. Who are we kidding? Admit it. All right. I'm going to open it up for questions. Uh, please uh, wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so people can hear you on our online audience. Uh, please ask a question. And own up to any uh, affiliation that you're uh, you're willing to state. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, ma'am, there. Hello, I'm Barbara Cherigino. Oh, okay. Hi, I'm Barbara Cherigino. I worked for the Defense Security Service for 28 years, and I'm now retired. I have a question for Mr. Factor. Sure. You stated that federal, not just federal, government employees could be, could present themselves in the labor market individually, not through a lobby, not through a union, that that was the most effective way for them to represent themselves in the labor market. What I want to know is, since government employees are not allowed to strike, Although you've given some instances when this happened illegally, they are not very frequent, and especially not for federal employees. If they are not allowed to strike, how can they individually represent themselves more effectively than in a union or a lobby? What I said, and, and um, um, with all due respect, I think you didn't listen carefully. What I said was that they should have the right to represent themselves. I have never said anything but that. And they should not be forced into a union bargaining group. Um, they shouldn't be forced into paying dues, which they're not in the federal government, but in 22 states they are. Let me give you a quick um, way of looking at it. If I took you after this meeting and I forced you into a car and I drove you to uh, National Harbor in Maryland, then I let you out of the car, charged you $200, and you said, I don't want to go there. I said, but look, it's beautiful here. There's, there's the beach, there's the water. You said, no, I don't want to go there. But I said, but it's nice. And then you said, why should I pay you on top of that? That's what you're doing. You're forcing people, whether they like it or not, into collective bargaining, and you're, you're forcing them to go on a ride they may not want to take. You may like that ride, but they may not, and it should be their right not have to take it. And in 22 states, they, should, they are forced into that ride, and they have to pay for it. Wait for the uh, mic, please. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, sir, on the left there. Hi, Matt Patterson, Competitive Enterprise Institute. My question is for Mr. Townsend. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, very interesting. I was wondering if you... Uh, could talk a little bit more about your argument about uh, deindustrialization contributing to the destruction of the tax base in some states and how that's more contributing to the bankrupting. Have you considered the counterargument that it's unionism driving up the cost of labor that has caused jobs to be shipped overseas that might be contributing to the deindustrialization you're talking about? The question is about deindustrialization, its impact on the tax base. Um, I don't think anybody can deny, get in the car, ride around any of the previously industrialized parts of the United States, it's been devastated. Now, it wasn't the unions who closed those factories, it was the folks who owned them. 
And if truth be known, the number of plant closings around the United States is in the tens of thousands, even in recent decades. Uh, the vast majority of them were not unionized. The vast majority were unorganized, uh, Southern. I mean, only one needs to take a ride through many of the Southern cities today to just see this devastation, these zones. Now, one may say that there was a situation where we had a world economy that was developing and the United States uh, was, for some reason, we, were, we failed to wake up. But I mean, in Mexico, China, I mean, you go on and on. But I mean, it, it can't be denied that the public policy of the United States through our trade policies, through the support for the corporations has been to drive manufacturing jobs and now increasingly uh, non-manufacturing jobs that can be offshored out of the United States. And what is left in many of these communities? And uh, I think this comes right back to the, the battle of the sisters and brothers in Chicago trying to teach the children in that city. Chicago is a city like most cities that whether you want to recognize it or not, it's in collapse. The city is in collapse. The job base is in collapse or what was left of it is in collapse. And people scrabble and make a living and get by and try to figure out how to live. And I've lived in some of these neighborhoods. Maybe you have too in your working life. This country is profoundly damaged in its productive underpinnings. And, uh, and when you go over to Capitol Hill, you can't even get uh, a recognition that that's the case, let alone have a, a, an intelligent conversation with anyone about any kind of policy that might actually rectify that and turn it around. And frankly, I'll end with this. Uh, this country, the, the empire, as I refer to it, uh, we're done for if we don't begin to figure out that sooner or later you have to produce something and pay your bills and, uh, and move forward in a productive way. And that the, to continue on the way we're continuing on, borrowing uh, getting involved in, uh, I remember I was lectured as a teenager by first Jimmy Carter, then Ronald Reagan about the service economy. Well, folks, this is the service economy. There's very little service and there's not much of an economy and it has to be fixed. If I may make one brief comment. I think Chris Towns and I agree on, uh, on a lot there. It's the way to get to that pr productive uh, place that we disagree on, but we all agree that we have to cut down these deficits and get to a productive place. I totally agree with him. Roger. Thank you, Roger Pilon, Cato Institute. Uh, my question is for Mr. Townsend, and I wonder if you would address uh, Mr. Factor's point about forced or compulsory bargaining uh, aspects of the NLRA. Um, I'll just illustrate it in my own case. Uh, at Columbia University, I supported myself for three and a half years as a New York cab driver. When I started, I could work for 30 days. After that, I had to join the union or I would no longer be able to do so. Um, and during the course of that three and a half years, I was approached often to contribute to the political activities of the union and was made to know that there would be costs, as indeed there were, if I didn't do so. That, I think, is the kind of force that uh, Mr. Factor is talking about and its roots are in compulsory bargaining. The employer really cannot say, I don't want to be unionized in a non-right-to-work non state. Uh, some comments to answer or address your question uh, and commentary. Uh, the scholarship regarding why we've ended up with the current labor law regimen that we have is poor to non-existent. The United States is modeled on the United Kingdom model. 
uh, not the model that has been adopted by the rest of the world. And in fact, through various means, the United States has imposed or persuaded other countries to take. We have the exclusive representation model, and then we have the question of union shop, closed shop, forced payment of dues or mandatory payment of dues. Most of the rest of the world, people join a union, but there's a difference. You might have as few as one or two or three people in a workplace join a union in some other country, and the employer is mandated by law to bargain with them. Now, when that decision had to be made during the Roosevelt administration, there were those elements in the business community here in the United States, many of the Fortune 100 at the time, that figured they were, they were cornered and that they were going to have to allow for some construction of some kind of an orderly uh, labor law regimen to allow for representation bargaining. There was obviously a lot of strike struggles, sit-down strikes, a lot of industrial dislocation it used to be referred to as, and the UK model was adopted. Labor had very little say in that. If you go back in that time frame in history, you'll see that many of the elements in the CIO were opposed to it. Some of the elements in the AFL were for it. There was differences in the labor movement. But anyway, that's a model that has been imposed on us. Now, as to the question of the fairness of it, the rightness, the wrongness of it, well, I'll assert this. Every job that I've ever had since I went to work when I was a teenager, uh, there's no constitutional right. There's no book of Hoyle. You go to work. You do what the boss tells you to do. Now, I've worked as a public sector worker. I've worked as a private sector worker. I, you go to work. Yes, sir or you could be fired. I have fought my way into every union I was in and whatnot, and uh, I have fought damn hard for union shop clauses. And the reason being that if a union is not able to maintain a certain level of stability, that instability is always exploited by the employer to oust us. Because, and what this literature indicates and what Mr. Factor's book indicates is we have a situation in the United States that isn't unique, but is somewhat unique in the industrial world which is the employers, the ruling class, the bosses, however you want to, the, the true bosses, the, the private sector bosses, have never accepted the existence of organized labor as an organization. Never have accepted it. And I think the history of U.S. labor relations has indicated that. And labor has fought for this exclusive representation in this mandatory closed shop or union shop dues model as one of the ways that we have to equalize against that. So I would never sit down or come here or go anywhere else, including in front of my own union, and say that it's a perfect system. But it's the system that we have, and given that we don't seem to have very much ability or very many allies left to actually improve it, we're going to fight damn hard to protect it. So. Gene. Gene Meyer, Federal Society. Um, I, I had a question uh, about, you know, you mentioned Chicago. And I had a question about teachers and teachers unions in general and I think a pretty widely shared view that education's not going the way we want it to in this country. Um, you know, strikingly, I mean, a lot of people actually, you know, either pay twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars a year to educate kids in private schools or educate them at home. Um, I'm just interested in your in your 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 comments about that area, since it very much apply to unions. Well, I mean, I, I'll go back to a quote. It's hotly contested. I, there's people who say he said it, people who say he didn't. But what it really does, it explains how unions really think in the education area. And it's attributed to Albert Shanker, and it goes like this. When school children start paying dues, that's when I'll start representing the interests of school children. The fact is that 
teachers union play the school children card all the time, but they do not represent school children. I mean, you look at what's going on in Chicago, $76,000 they're averaging. I mean, what is the absolute sin is teachers of the year, people who've been given awards as teachers of the year for their competence, for their success with children in Nevada, New Jersey, in Michigan, are fired while incompetent teachers, teachers who are subpar, doing a lousy job because of unions, are kept in. You can't get rid of the bad apples because the unions won't let you do it. There was a principal, and, um, and I'm going to read the quote about um, Randy Weingarten. And the principal said, uh, Randy Weingarten would defend a dead teacher in the classroom. That's her job. The point is, they are not looking out for our children. They are standing in the way of us making reforms. Chicago teachers teach about 1,049 hours a year. That's half of what private sector workers work. That's about 20 hours a week. They, and they will not allow, the union will not allow us to have the teachers teach more. One other quick point, in a lot of other industrialized societies, who are doing much better in science and math than we are. They're spending less per student, but they're not, but they're not going 170 to 180 days a year to school. They're going 220, and they're teaching many more hours a day. The unions won't let us do it because they don't care one iota about the children. They only care about themselves and about the shadow bosses. There are great teachers, but the shadow bosses, the union heads, are not. I'll, I'll just offer on the Chicago situation in public education and teachers generally. I, I think if, if our nation, if folks within our nation, if some of you or the political leadership, the, the, the intellectual leadership, if folks want to go to bed tonight and think that uh, there's some problem with unions and school teachers and that somehow that's the causation of the collapse of the public education system, well, it's, it's delusional. It's delusional. But of course, I, I, I would assert that we live, walk over to Capitol Hill. We're, we're living in a delusional uh, environment in this city. Come with me into some of these negotiations with companies. We're dealing increasingly in this uh, decaying empire in a delusional science fiction kind of uh, world as far as I'm concerned. And I would say so on the school teachers, it's that look at the children who live in Chicago and try to get by. Chicago is a city, like most of our large cities, that's in various gradations of collapse. Crime, drugs, unemployment. The children are there for a few hours with a teacher who you have to figure spends some amount of enthusiasm to try to teach these young people. They're then forced to take a mandatory test dreamed up by someone in a private corporation someplace uh, after most of the, the more talented students and more well-to-do students have been siphoned off into private schools or charter schools, and there becomes this group of young people that they're trying to work with and trying to do something. The minute the bell rings and they're let out into the street, the, what societal force is there to encourage learning and education? So uh, it, it's a somewhat gloomy perspective. I think you could walk down the street to the nearest public school here in Washington, D.C. and see some of the same factors at play. Um, it is a dilemma that I think needs a lot more thoughtfulness and a lot more supportive approach than just figuring that the teachers union is what has to be expelled from the scene in order to fix public education. Uh, the back there, pink, pink shirt, no, yeah, no, yeah. You. Mm -hmm. 
this is Stan Greer, National Right to Work Committee. Uh, Chris Townsend, that, you know, what you say just there, it kind of reminds me of, you know, if a man uh, was shot, say, uh, you know, in the chest, but it's not quite fatal, and uh, the ambulance comes and takes him to the hospital, and uh, the, uh, you know, the doctor looks at him and he says, no, there's no point in taking this bullet out. You have diabetes, you know? <laughs> we can't, uh, we, we can't uh, handle this, uh, this, uh, this problem. Because, yeah, but you, you don't have to address every single potential obstacle to students learning before you address and you, you know, take responsibility for answering the question. Uh, we have heard from media accounts, from union sources themselves, that a major obstacle in, in ending this strike in Chicago is that uh, Rahm Emanuel wants to be able to do exactly what uh, Mallory said you can't do, which is correct in the vast majority of school districts in America. He wants to be able to lay off teachers not based on seniority, but based on how well a job they're doing. Even if you don't think that those tests gauging how good a job you're doing, you don't think that principals or school boards or somebody could do a better job in deciding who is to be laid off in a situation where you have to be laid off than just seniority? And you don't think that laying off teachers based on seniority alone you know, is, is harmful to a large section of teachers or it's harmful to school children, even if you think schools have a lot of other problems, don't you see a point in, in trying to fix that? Can you really defend that? All right. Would you like to try? I'll, I'll just offer, um, I wouldn't take advice from Rahm Emanuel on how to close my screen door. Uh, I, I am not interested in Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel is someone who, uh, well, no, it's, I, I, I think Rahm Emanuel, who, on what basis, no, the, no the, the, I'll defend it. On what basis is Rahm Emanuel suddenly an expert in public education? And that we're going we're gonna to toss, toss out, I mean, what are there, 25, 26,000 teachers, the vast, vast majority of which, as best I can tell, are participating in the strike. We've got that level of unity amongst the actual teaching faculty. And we have Rahm Emanuel dispatched back to Chicago to try to do something there for himself, I presume. And this guy is suddenly now dictating to the teachers. If I was in Chicago I, and, and teaching school, I would absolutely want to have a union. I don't want someone like this uh, dictating to me. And then the, the final thing I'll say on this is, uh, one of the when we get into any discussion, union, non-union, employer, union, employer, workers, uh, I think when you come to a city like Washington D.C., perhaps this audience is somewhat typical of it. It's it's not to be critical of anyone. I think it's just the nature of it. When you go to work in the workplace today, you absolutely don't have any rights. Nothing. This this assertion that Mr. Factor makes that somehow you're going to go in and negotiate for yourself somehow preposterous. It's preposterous. And that workers form unions because they realize that there has to be some strength in numbers, there has to be some way to compel the employer to at least treat them evenly, if not fairly. And are unions pure? No. Uh, are unions perfect? Of course not. But we struggle to try to provide some modicum to sort of moderate that struggle that goes on in the workplace. Because without it, all sorts of things happen that people will uh, resent. And uh, the last I'll say on this is that uh, I think as the labor relations format, the labor relations regimen of the country is methodically uh, smashed uh, and attacked and undermined, we will see uh, a return to strike struggle. Uh, I welcome it. I welcome that because it's about time. Uh, wh why would we want to wait? Why would we as organized labor want to wait any longer uh, to have these showdowns and have these battles? Bring it on as far as I'm concerned. And bring on Rahm Emanuel.
If I could comment on, if I can comment on that from, if, and I'm not going to answer your question either. I, I'm sorry to say. Um, I'm going to com, I'm going to comment on that for a second with your permission. Uh, the fix is in, guys. The fix is in. Uh, if you were, I was in Tampa and I was in Charlotte at both conventions. And in Charlotte, I attended, I met with a couple of union heads, and they were told to low key it, because we all know that in the swing states, which Obama needs to get reelected, union issues are not polling well. So he's distancing himself, our union label president, for the next 50 some odd days. And he's been distancing himself because he wants to reelect. Rahm Emanuel is quite well known to the president. He's one of his guys, you gotta admit that. I mean, there's no question about that. And what they're doing is they're trying to show some backbone to the unions. Keep in mind, during the Scott Walker election, he was right next door in another state. He could have come to Milwaukee. He could have come to Madison, but President Obama didn't go there. And you know why he didn't go there? Because it would have hurt his reelection chances. This is a very slick campaign machine. It's not illegal what he's doing, but you have to see through it. This is campaign politics at its best. Stand up to the unions. Help get the swing states. Sorry to answer your question, but I thought that was important to get out. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Tim Shorrock. I work at American Federation of Government Employees, one of the unions you detest. And uh, I, I want to say, uh, you know, as a former journalist, I like to do a story. I like to talk to everybody I possibly can. You say you're pro-worker. I wonder if you talk to the workers like the civilian police at Fort Hood who took bullets to protect people and shot down that Fort Hood shooter. Did you talk to them? Did you no, talk I to any of those civ civilian police who belong to our union, who are active members of our union? Did you talk to the VA nurses who work for $30,000 a year and support our vets in hospitals? Did you work to the border patrol people who, put, who protect our borders? Yes, I Immigration, have talked to them. Oh, I'm sure you talked to them because they're very anti-Obama, actually, as, which shows how democratic our union is because we, they disagree with you know, the leadership of the union and they take their own position and, and, and counter uh, what they believe is uh, wrong policies by the Obama administration because they represent their members. They represent their members honestly. Uh, did you talk to civilian workers at depots all around the country who keep our weapons, you know, usable so they can go back and, and soldiers can go back and use them? Did you talk to any of those people? Can I answer the question? Can you now? give me a number? So are you, you saying that, are you saying that these people wouldn't be doing their jobs if they weren't in the union? I mean, that's absurd. Come well, that's, on. I, I they, asked they you a question, shot, they I asked you a shot question, a, They sir. wouldn't have shot a criminal who's attacking people if they weren't a union member? They have to be a union member to do their job? Come on. No, of course not. That's not what I'm saying at all. What are you saying? You know that very well. I, I'm saying that there's thousands of people out there who do their job very hard to protect this country, to honor its, you know, their commitment to this country, okay. and belong to unions because they are not the boss. I can assure you that. They are not the boss. They deal with bosses all the time. That's What's your question? Have collective bargaining. My question is, how many workers, federal employees, did you actually talk to? Several hundred. Several hundred. Thank you. I am going to take, for the last question, the moderator privilege question, the one I'm most interested in from Mr. Townsend is uh, where would you draw any limit of possible illegitimacy? Uh, would you draw a distinction between public sector unions and private unions, legally, conceptually, philosophically? And would you draw any distinction about what public sector unions might be allowed to bargain over 
for example, because it usurps the democratic process. I mean, if, the, if we allow them to bargain over children's co curriculums and how they're going to be taught, isn't that taking it away from the voters? Is there any, I'm just wondering where you draw those boundaries. Yeah. Um, I'll get to that in a second. I just wanted to intercede something here with the exchange, the last exchange here. Uh, it's common in my experience that when you get folks who are very anti-union, which is their privilege, say they're right, we'll always boil down to say, we're not against people being able to belong to a union. We're not against unions. Well, I, all I ask folks to say is show me what worker rights protection, minimum wage, child labor, any of these things that you support. I mean, it, workers aren't stupid. We realize that when we're up against this kind of a struggle that you can trace back the anti-union forces become the forces against all working progress, all social progress in the workplace. It's, it's the, the, the literature, the history is clear. We know what we're dealing with here. But anyway, to uh, your question, I don't draw the, any distinction between public and private sector, and I'll tell you why. Uh, when I was 17 years old, unemployed, and needed a job, I pounded the pavement in the town that I lived in in Florida, and I would have went to work for anyone who said yes. I had only a limited skill set to sell. I have a little more now. But back then, I needed to survive. I was on the edge of, that was the 1979 recession, and I, and I, I ended up getting a job as a public sector garbage collector. And uh, when you do that in a city or a town where nobody knows you, that's kind of, that's great. You know, no, I'm, it's not my hometown here. Now I'm riding around on the back of a garbage truck. Your mother always tells you, you'll be a garbage collector if you don't. Well, I was grateful for that job. I also unionized that job because that city in Florida didn't even pay us minimum wage because they didn't have to. Because the law at that time allowed them to pay us less than minimum wage. And they paid us 10 cents less than minimum wage just so they knew that they were large and in charge. There was a lot of other indignities that we suffered. And I, I don't draw the distinction. Workers don't run this economy. Workers don't control this economy. We have no control over who hires, who, where the growing sectors are. There's the political elites, Capitol Hill, corporate America. These are the folks that are in charge of this country. Newsflash. Uh, I make no distinction whether or not workers work in the public sector or the private sector. Every worker who wants to join, belong to a union, collectively bargain with their employer and reserve the right to strike. That's where I come from, period. Do you have a response to all of that? I'll, I'll take the next question. Uh, well, we, we, see. we have time for one more short question. Uh, uh, sir, here. Uh, one, Mike, the mic, please. Um, you used the word union boss, so my apologies if I'm rude here. What inspired you to be a union buster? Uh, was a union it buster. I, I, I just mean, want to well, give workers no, I mean, the right to choose. Well, you, you're not a professional freedom. union buster in the fact that you don't do it in the workplace. Right. But I'm just using the type of terminology you did here. What, what kind of personal experience? Did you have some sort of bad interaction or something? I'm, I'm being genuine here. No, no, I'll, I'll answer you, and I'll be genuine too. Um, the money. I mean, how much you make for the book? I'll very, I'll, I'll, if this book continues to sell extraordinarily well, I will make somewhere between a dollar twenty-five to a dollar fifty an hour. Well, what about, uh, that's how. That's how. That's how. That's how much I'll make on this book. What about speaking fees? I've I've had no speaking fees. Really? Yeah, zero. So did you have a what? But, um, what ha what happened was we started out writing a book about the problem that America's facing: the ballooning of our deficit, the immense growth of government, and the hu and huge unemployment. 
and the destruction of K-12 education. And we kept following the money, where the money goes to. What, what, what causes the politicians to vote the way they do? And it kept coming back to the $14 billion, so I'm sorry, $14 billion annually that the unions have and the vast amounts they spend on our political system. That is the greatest scam that's being perpetrated on the American people. It's the government employee unions where they buy their own politicians and then they contribute back to them. And that's how we got into this book. We weren't going to write a book about unions originally. We were just trying to write a book about the problems well, well, America's facing. Oh, the, that here we go again. You that can't win on the issues, that. so you want to bring up crony capitalism. Okay, bring up the, bring up uh, cancer, all the other hey, stuff. Hey, do you let me answer this? You didn't hear my question. Uh, the Koch brothers, as I wrote in the Nation last year, forcing the working class to depend on capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. I am not going to, I'm not, if you want to talk about crony capitalism, that's for another I'm not, forum. I'm not asking no. you about crony capitalism, I'm asking about capital bodies, political meetings. Do you believe that there should you're, be... You're asking me a question about what now? Capital bodies, political meetings, in which Georgia-Pacific, making workers sit down and talk to them about who to vote for in the election, as opposed to unions who, who force people to sit down and listen to them. I don't know what the Koch brothers are doing at Georgia Pacific. I don't, you're, you're asking about something I didn't, I don't know. I just told you, I don't know about that. But I do know that unions force people to sit down. I'm going to have to interrupt here. We're going to have to wrap this up, actually. I'm not dodging it. I'm, I told you, I don't. We're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, so thank, please thank both of our speakers.